We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Isaiah Fountain has been dead for more than a century. The black Talbot County farmer was executed, hanged, on July 23, 1920, after he had been convicted by two courts of the rape of a 14-year-old white girl near Easton and sentenced to death. If that statement assures you that Fountain was not among the 38 black men lynched in Maryland, the book that Joseph Coper has written calls you to think again. Coper's book is titled The Isaiah Fountain Case, Outrage and Jim Crow Justice on Maryland's Eastern Shore. And Joseph Coper joins us by Zoom. Welcome to On the Record. Thank you very much, Sheila. It's great to be here. You didn't settle in Talbot County until you had retired from a career in HR management. What drew you into telling Isaiah Fountain's story? Well, there's a lot of history here in Talbot County, and uh, I uh, do a lot of reading, and I consider myself kind of up on the history of the area. And I happened to read uh, about the Isaiah Fountain case in Sherilyn Eiffel's book on the courthouse lawn. And uh, I was amazed. I had never heard about it before, and it, uh, I was kind of shocked by it. Uh, so I did some research on my own, and local history books only had snippets or, or brief mentions of the case. Uh, so I started to delve into uh, newspaper articles and, and found the uh, articles of a local paper here, the Eastern Star Democrat. It went on to the Baltimore newspapers, Wilmington newspapers, and so forth, and found out there were hundreds of articles written about this case. And it was truly a, a big case at the time. I mean, it would probably be equivalent to George Floyd today. Well, let's, uh, let, let's get into the case. There was no dispute that Bertha Simpson was accosted and sexually attacked by a black man driving a horse and buggy as she walked home from school on Tuesday, April 1st, 1919. How did Isaiah Fountain come to be the chief suspect? Well, first off, he was black, and this is in the midst of Jim Crow. Also, uh, he happened to leave town the very next morning after the rape, to find his wife who had run away. And uh, putting the two together, the local population and the uh, Talbot County uh, state's attorney basically pegged him as the chief suspect and uh, uh, started the search for him. Fountain was arrested six days after the rape as he visited his brother near Philadelphia and he was extradited to Maryland. And already at that time, there were threats to lynch him. That's correct. Uh, at that time, in the, in the midst of Jim Crow era, uh, lynching, especially if it involved a sexual matter with a white woman, uh, it was a hot-button topic. Fountain's trial started on a Monday, less than three weeks after the rape. You go into a lot of detail about the testimony, the Fountain's alibi, and whether or not that could hold up in court. What was happening outside the Talbot County Courthouse while witnesses were being heard inside late into that evening? Well, because this was a such a hot topic in the area, uh, thousands of people had gathered in Easton, uh, the county seat. And, uh, of course, not all of them could get into the courtroom. 
So they uh, stayed outside uh, during the day and uh, messages were passed from the courtroom to the crowd outside, uh, basically sharing the testimony. Uh, the court recessed for the evening and uh, when they uh, reconvened uh, later that evening, the judge did not allow any people inside the courtroom except for the witnesses. So uh, that angered the crowd and uh, they just became more and more agitated as the evening went on. You quote one of the Baltimore papers describing the crowd as, quote, a bloodthirsty, shrieking mass of humanity, close quote. That was uh, the the Baltimore uh, newspapers uh, uh, were pretty descriptive of the crowd. Uh, while the uh, local newspaper uh, basically was very bland about the reporting. Uh, uh, they, they basically said that, you know, it was a gathering of people and, and they were excited. But some of them were carrying ropes. Carrying ropes and weapons, yes. Um, the sheriff, Sheriff Stitchberry, and um, a posse of Baltimore City police officers who had been assigned um, to do security got Fountain through the crowd uh, on the courthouse lawn across to the sheriff's house, which was attached to the jail. And then what? Well, uh, as they were making their way through the crowd, uh, of course, the crowd became even more agitated and uh, starting to shout threats, uh, trying to grab the, uh, uh, the suspect. The police officers and local deputies and the sheriff uh, made their way through the crowd as they became more violent. Upon reaching the sheriff's house, the sheriff uh, shoved Isaiah Fountain in, into his house. Isaiah was not manacled or handcuffed. Uh, so when he was inside the house, he realized that you know, his life was in danger. The sheriff realized it. And the sheriff's wife, who was inside the house with Isaiah, realize it. She told him to get down on the uh, on the floor and crawl because she was afraid of uh, shooting coming through the window. Well, Isaiah Fountain ended up crawling out an open window and uh, ran through a jail yard over a fence and uh, made his escape uh, while the uh, crowd, you know, was still agitated and, and the, the sheriff was trying to uh, calm them down. That's Joseph Coper on the record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about his book, The Isaiah Fountain Case, Outrage and Jim Crow Justice on Maryland's Eastern Shore, published by Secant Publishing of Salisbury, Maryland. The jury was still in the courtroom. What did Judge William Adkins do in open court? The very next day, uh, the court reconvened without Isaiah Fountain, of course. He was on the run. Uh, the very first thing the judge said was announced to the jury that the uh, trial would be postponed because Isaiah Fountain had escaped. And then he raised a posse, basically, and set up a, a $5,000 reward for the capture of Isaiah Fountain. And then court was uh, recessed until Fountain could be recaptured. So let me compress some of the story here. Fountain was found in Delaware, in a Delaware barn less than two days later, brought back to court. Um, And Judge Atkins essentially told the jury that Fountain had run to protect himself from the mob, uh, and the jury should not interpret it as a sign of guilt. But 
the judge overruled the defense motion for a mistrial. Um, Another day of trial. At the end of the day, the jury of 12 white men deliberated less than nine minutes before returning a verdict of guilty. Joseph, pick up the story with how Fountain's lawyers argued for an appeal before the Maryland Court of Appeals. They claimed that uh, Fountain uh, should get a new trial because of the judge, uh, first off, announcing that he had escaped to the jury, and secondly, uh, because uh, the not only the jury, but the judge might have been intimidated by the mob violence that evening. And so he, uh, he said there should be a new trial. And the Court of Appeals essentially agreed that, that the mob set on lynching Fountain had made a fair trial impossible. That is correct. That is correct. And uh, Fountain's attorney uh, even made the statement, he said, amazing as it may be, uh, Fountain being found guilty at that trial probably saved his life. Uh, because if he had not been found guilty, he would have been lynched. So Fountain's lawyers got the new trial moved from Talbot to Towson, and they opted for a trial by judge instead of jury. Joseph, you write, quote, it was the court, not the prosecution, that effectively demolished Fountain's alibi. Explain that. Well, the court based their decision on the victim's testimony, which was uh, sketchy and inconsistent in both trials. But even though they said they based it on their testimony, they ended up changing her testimony about when the rape actually occurred. And by fiddling with the timeline, they ended up increasing the uh, opportunity that Fountain might have had to rape her by as much as one and a half hours. And the other thing is they completely ignored very credible testimony from three white officials in the town, including the Easton chief of police, who all swore that Isaiah Fountain was in in town at the time of the rape, which was nine miles away from the uh, rape site. So it would have been impossible for him to uh, leave town, drive the nine miles. He had a rather rickety wagon and, and, and not a very good horse. Uh, but to go that distance, uh, stalk his victim, find her, and then rape her. Let me compress some more of the story. A little more than a month after he was convicted a second time, Isaiah Fountain escaped again, this time for six days. Joseph, some people might look at this case and say that for that period of Jim Crow, the system afforded Fountain some ability to make his case, and and it did protect him from being lynched. I don't think you see it that way. Certainly his case is a lot different from uh, many of the... uh, victims of Jim Crow who who were lynched, uh, who basically, uh, once they were identified, they were caught and strung up. If they did have a trial, it was usually a sham affair, and uh, they were quickly uh, executed or or lynched after the trial. Uh, Isaiah Fountain's case was different in that he took advantage of the legal system, uh, which did not help him, Uh, 
but then he also acted on his own um, by initiating his two escapes. Still, with all this, he ended up dying on the gallows. I, I guess you could uh, I- interpret it, especially during the Jim Crow era, as, as a, uh, a legal lynching. What do you think would be justice? Well, I was kind of heartened by Governor Hogan's blanket pardoning of 34 lynching victims that uh, he, he granted this posthumous pardon in May 2021. And uh, also, there there is precedent for posthumous pardon. There was a, a, a case with a, a, a contemporary uh, of Isaiah Fountain in Annapolis. His name was John Snowden. And he had a remarkably similar case to Isaiah Fountain, and uh, he was also put to death. But in 2001, uh, Governor Paris Glendening issued him a posthumous pardon. So uh, I I would hope that somewhere along the line, uh, our present governor or future governor could uh, do the same thing for Isaiah Fountain. It's a fascinating case. Thank you for all the research you did. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed talking about it with you. Joseph Coper's book is The Isaiah Fountain Case, Outrage and Jim Crow Justice on Maryland's Eastern Shore. Short break on the record. When we're back, Maryland's first in the nation lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay tuned. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Four years ago, Maryland became the first state to set up a lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Its chairman says state government has, in effect, left the commission alone. No pushback from the state, he said, but not much support either. Now, with a new governor, the first African-American Maryland has elected to the top job, Commission Chair David Falkenlight thinks the Truth and Reconciliation Panel is about to be revitalized. With a Ph.D. in mental health, Falkenlight holds faculty appointments at three universities, Morgan State's School of Community Health and Policy, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and the University of Florida Center for Arts in Medicine. Falkenlight is a drummer and storyteller in the African griot tradition. He's joining us by Zoom. Welcome back to the show. Sailor, always an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I had always assumed the Maryland legislature appropriated money when it created the commission, but it turns out your only funding has come from the U.S. Justice Department during the Trump administration, right? That is correct. So one of the things that the commission realized is we were prepared for scrutiny. Uh, We know that racial terror lynching is a topic within American society that in many cases is still considered taboo. So the fact that the commission was even created was a golden opportunity in itself. I think all of us were realistic in thinking we wouldn't get much uh, explicit support, uh, let alone financial support. And we were okay with that. We were going to be a piecemeal, 
commission doing the work that the law called us to do as best we could. And as you said, Sheila, we got an email uh, one day uh, saying that we received funding from the Department of Justice, the Bureau for Justice Assistance, the Emmett Till uh, Cold Case Program. Uh, I give all credit to the vice chair, Dr. Charles Chavis of George Mason University for pushing the commission to apply for this funding, although we didn't think it was a good fit. Uh, the cold case program was focused on prosecuting cold cases as it suggested, and the MLTRC does not have prosecutorial power. Uh, but nevertheless, we went forward and apparently we were the first entity <laughs> to receive funding from this program under the previous administration, as you mentioned. So complete shock, but we see it as uh, confirmation from the, the universe that this is the work that needs to be done and it needs to be done correctly. And as you say, your work is not prosecuting cold cases. How would you describe what the work is? The work is about telling the story, the whole story, ultimately. It's about making sure this aspect of Maryland's history uh, within the tapestry of the history of the United States is not forgotten. This is not a fun story to tell. This demonstrates and exemplifies the worst of humanity, where people's lives were taken in the most heinous and brutal of fashions simply because of their existence, simply for the preservation of white power. So it is critical and imperative and that the at worst, all we'll do is, is tell this story the way it should be told, honoring the lives of the victims, uh, elevating their humanity, restoring their humanity in many cases, and making the connection to the atrocities of racial oppression and racial terrorism that happen today. It may not look like a body hanging from a tree or left in the middle of the road for all to see, but we know that lives are being taken simply because of their existence and systems in place contribute to the loss of life, not just the end of life, but the loss of quality life. And, and those are the relationships that we want to elevate as well, because this oppression has not gone away. It's evolved. It's changed as society has changed. But yet there's a fundamental problem that we as a commission would be remiss if we did not do our best to address. Your commission has held five public hearings, several on the Eastern Shore, also one in Western Maryland and one in Baltimore County. Each one is specific, of course, but collectively, what is the impact of your hearings? I would say the number one impact certainly speaks to the descendants of racial terror lynching victims, which we've been so blessed to have at some of our hearing sessions. And members of the community, particularly the Black communities and Black neighborhoods, that in large part concurrent with racial terror lynchings were wiped off the map. So it wasn't just the individual victim of the racial terror lynching, but it was the families and communities and relationships that were severed because of the overall campaign of, of racial terrorism throughout the state of Maryland. So knowing that we have, in many cases with our hearing sessions, a direct connection to the victim through their descendants, uh, the descendants in many cases being well aware of who their ancestor was and the way in which their life was taken, to have a platform to restore that ancestor's humanity is easily the most poignant aspect of the hearing sessions that we've had. But really the depth with which we've been able to explore some of these racial terror lynchings, I would highlight those 
in the Lower Eastern Shore, some of our last hearing sessions in 2022, all the different factors and circumstances and people and institutions that played a role in the killing of a black person. It's, it's shocking, no matter how much you know this history, it's disappointing to say the least. And at the same time, it galvanizes you to know exactly what has to happen in order for justice to occur, uh, for equity to engage as a process, for equality to be a realistic outcome and liberation to be the ultimate goal. That's David Falconley, chair of the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. On the record, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about the commission's impact and its prospects. The legislature has extended the commission's life once, but it will sunset a year from June unless the legislature acts again. What would you like to see? At the very least, more time to do this work. <laughs> Uh, which is something that we're very confident we will get uh, with the current legislation currently uh, in discussion. Uh, We continue to find other cases of racial terror lynchings, and certainly it takes time and resources in order to investigate and to confirm that it is indeed a racial terror lynching. Uh, I want the audience to understand that the definition of lynching has been a point of healthy discussion for 100 plus years. Uh, the MLTRC has its own defini- definition of lynching, uh, racial terror lynching specifically, so that we focus on those commissions of lynchings that happen for the preservation of uh, racial hierarchy. So in order to do this work, we need people, we need money, we need time. I don't think that's a shock to anyone. Uh, we are very encouraged and strengthened by the support that we have uh, from the two champions of the current legislation in discussion, Delegate Jennifer White, as well as Senator Charles Sidnor. So we feel confident that we will get uh, more uh, tangible support, uh, more resources, more opportunities, particularly for young people to be involved in this work. This really is a great opportunity for students to be involved in all aspects of what we do. It's not just history, it's not just research, it's not just archival work, but it is the storytelling. It's the public relations, it's the establishing connections with local coalitions, it's thinking about the dissemination of this information so that it isn't just a report that sits on a shelf. We want this to be a living work that people can find their connection to. And what will significantly help that process is having uh, a multi-generational view of this work. Are you looking to expand the commission? Yes. So we are to have 18 commissioners. That was what was written into uh, the original law. Uh, One of the at-large commissioners uh, resigned. So we want to fill that 18 slot. But in our recent retreat uh, at Bowie State, we thought about other entities that should be represented on the commission, especially as we think about the impact of this work and how it can address other aspects of racial oppression. So we've thought about the Department of Education. Uh, We thought about the Department of Health. Uh, we've thought about some representation from law enforcement. So along with extending uh, the, the life of the commission, uh, there is, uh, I think, the need for more representation. If we want to encourage law enforcement to consider reform, then they should be represented in this process. If we want to think about the public health impact of racial oppression, of racial terrorism, well, we better have a public health person. Yes, I'm one of them, but I think an official representative from the State Department of Health would be impactful. Education is, is the duh 
in all this. So having a representative from the Department of Education. So we, there's really opportunity to, re, like you said, reimagine this commission. Well, what has the commission not done or not been able to do that you think is important to do before it sunsets? I think it's not so much what we haven't been able to do, but the depth in which we can do it. There's so much information to review and to research and to confirm. And there may be things available at Maryland State Archives, which is one of the uh, agencies represented on the commission. There may be pieces of information or materials that we have to go down to the Eastern Shore to retrieve, that we may have to go out to Western Maryland to retrieve. Those things take time, they take money, they take resources. So we do not want to uh, do this work half-heartedly. It, it is a traumatic story, and there are people who have lived this story through generations. There are communities that are still affected by the stories today. So it's not just about retrieving the history and making sure it's preserved in a truthful manner, but this is also about healing as well. So while we are a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, in reality, we are about truth, healing, and justice. Uh, we focus on getting the truth and as much of that truth as we can recover, and we want to be a catalyst for the healing that needs to happen, not just for the descendants of victims, but the communities in which, again, oppression still exists. David, I appreciate your talking to us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sheila. appreciate you. David Falkenley, a public health expert, is a drummer, storyteller, and chair of the Maryland Lynching Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We have a link to the commission's website at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you've joined us on the record. Join us again tomorrow. <laughs>